This podcast is a production of WBEZ Chicago. Become a new member of WBEZ or renew your membership at WBEZ.org. We can't do it without you. WBEZ, radio for the curious class. Hello to you, television friend. So what's your religion, Liz Lemon? Mm, I pretty much just do whatever Oprah tells me to. What you talking about, Will? It's business. We're soldiers. Well, what's the show about? It's about nothing. Honey, I'm home. Or at least a voice of a generation. Advertising is based on one thing. Happiness. Always money in the banana stand. There is nothing wrong with your television set. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Changing Channels. I'm Leah Pickett. I'm Britt Julius. And I'm Allison Cuddy. Every week on Changing Channels, we watch TV and talk about its future. On this week's episode, we're going to dive deep, real deep, into the fall television season and question the whole idea of seasons with Vulture television critic Margaret Lyons. And we'll talk to the creator of one of our favorite web series, Easy Abby, shot right here in Chicago. But first, as always, the news. So one thing I wanted to talk about in terms of the news, uh, there is a study from San Diego State University, uh, their Center for the uh, Study of Women in Television and Film, their annual boxed-in report. Um, Yes, you guys are kind of familiar with this. Um, And I actually didn't know that they do this uh, report, but um, their numbers indicate that women uh, representation both on screen and behind the screens is actually on the rise. Um, They said that, yeah, (laughs) surprising, which... because they say things. the exact opposite thing in their last report. I guess. I mean, this time it's it's saying that that it's up, right? So it says that um, among uh, series creators, um, it is down two percent year over year from like last year to this year. Um, but it's up from uh, up six percent percentage points from 1997 to 1998. Um, the number of women who are executive producers is up two percent. Um, the number of women who are just women producers in general is even. The number of writers um, is up four percent. Um, um, and editors is up three percent, which is not a lot, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of the the major numbers and how it you know compares to men in general. But it's sort of <laughs> significant. Well, I guess we couldn't have got any worse than reports we've been hearing earlier this year, especially in the film business about how women are so marginalized and they try so hard just to get that one shot, you know, that one film that right. they can shoot when men can just. They have free reign, it seems. Um, But what we talk a lot about on Changing Channels is that women on TV are given more of a space, it would appear, Mm -hmm. uh, to be showrunners and to have a show with complex three-dimensional female characters that sometimes we don't see on film. I mean, The Heat was marketed as a movie that was finally a film for women starring two funny women. Like, that was such a novelty thing. Whereas I think on in TV, that would be... We've got a million, like, two broke girls is the first one that comes to mind. Not saying that's the best show on TV, right. but at least that... It, it didn't seem like a novelty thing to have, like, a buddy comedy with two women. Can I throw out some more numbers that they had here? Because they're kind of kind oh. of interesting. Okay. So um, they said that uh, the networks with the highest percentage of female characters, or the network rather, that has the highest number of female characters is the CW, which is really? in proportion to the representation in the U.S. population. Yes. 
Yes, Fox and ABC. Another 44%. reason to love the CW and the <laughs> shows, and they don't they don't give up on their shows. Like even when their shows are not good, um, the Carrie Diaries got renewed for a second season, um, and then also the show The Heart of Dixie. Uh, with Rachel Bilson, nobody watches that show, but it's like, hey, Rachel Bilson is starring as this this little doctor in the South that could, and so yeah, they they definitely do something to promote uh, female fronted shows. I'll yeah. give the CW that. CBS has the lowest percentage at thirty nine percent, which is pretty horrible in in my opinion. Um, something else they also said is that reality programs were more likely to feature women than any other genres. Oh. Sitcoms were 43% and dramas were 40%, which I find pretty interesting because when we talk about the most prestigious television shows, they tend to be dramas. And a lot of times, as we've kind of discussed in the past, they don't really have these female characters like we said like a lot of those shows have female an- or male anti-heroes yeah and when there is like a female lead like i think of uh claire danes on homeland there is so much flack around that show for the way that she cries like people just make whenever she tr- she's dramatic and i think she's a great actress i'm not gonna lie her crying face is kind of comedic if you have it like a still like as a meme or something like that but i think it, it takes away from the fact that there's this this female lead in a drama and people just make fun of the way she cries well, like they don't take her seriously yeah i mean there's more sort of with the return of of homeland coming and we're going to be talking more about the fall tv season uh people are like there's more talk about her face because this season she's going to go back off her meds right it's going to be all about carrie again mm-hmm. maybe we should just call that show all about carrie <laughs> right. Maybe that show should be called The Carrie Diaries. But that's that. something that people have picked up on, too. Like, if if that's some of the, the price you pay for getting female characters, that in some way they have to be a wreck in this way. I don't know. I that's mean, really it's an interesting. interesting idea to think about, but... Hopefully, the numbers are going to go up on TV criticism because they did a recent study, um, the same center right. at San Diego State, on film criticism, and the majority of it is done by men, so... Hopefully we're helping ride that balance. Just a reminder that your awards luncheon is today. What? You won an award. Congratulations on being named one of the 80 under 80, honoring women in entertainment who aren't Betty White. Oh my goodness, the ceremony will be broadcast on Lifetime? Oh, dot com. Backslash garbage file. Okay, but still, I won an award! So my news story this week is about True Blood. HBO recently announced that True Blood will be ending. Its seventh and final season will air next summer, 2014. When I heard this news, I simply shrugged my shoulders and said, well, good, because the show has gotten so bad that it just should have ended three seasons ago, and I'm not surprised, and let it go. But when a show ends, aren't you supposed to get angry? Like, if a show is good, like Bunheads, and it gets canceled, like, aren't you supposed to be like, no, bring it back? So that made me think, and I want to hear your thoughts on this. Should shows stop while they're ahead? Is it better to, uh, like, burn out than fade away, you know, to end, like, on on a high note? instead of just sort of crumbling into oblivion and then nobody cares where right. you end. Well, yeah, I mean, we've talked about that a little bit before. I think in the case of Drew Blood, I'm, I'm with you, Leah, because I wrote down True Blood ends after seven seasons and not a moment too soon, but yes. many moments too late. <laughs> but I think the thing is that show did burn out or like the creative energy. Alan Ball just kind of, I don't know, did he get he on He left more? the show. Yeah, and so mm-hmm. like I feel like why did that show keep going on 
in the wake of that. It just didn't seem to have, or that would be a signal that somehow we're done, right? I'm done with this. I'm moving on. Why are you guys sticking around? Well, it's still actually one of the most popular shows, but at the same time, people have, I think people have started hate watching it, which I think, I'm just going to say, I think hate watching is an oxymoron. Hate watching to me just means you really love the show, but you like love how bad it is. So you keep watching it. So really, you know, hate watching means that you still love the show and want to watch it for maybe a perverse reason. But people are still watching this show. But everybody that I know who still watches True Blood, they're just like, it's, I hate it, but I just can't stop watching it, you know, but it's so bad now. And, and the reviews have gotten worse. Um, so I think they probably have held on to it so long because it's still a ratings winner. Uh, but I I think creatively it is all it's all done. One thing that I think the show did is that it started off being essentially about like one central storyline with characters kind of having their own things going on, but they were all sort of working towards the same issue or same problem. The first season had um uh, uh, oh, I can't remember his name right now, but he was one of their friends, one of their characters, and you actually found out that he was the one who had been murdering all of these women who were having, you know, sexual relations with the vampires. Right. Um, and as the show progressed, it just sort of took all of these individual characters and gave them their own storyline, sort of like a soap opera, and, and, and it really just lost its focus. And so I think, like, you know, in the past where it was good that, you know, the characters had their own lives, but there was this one central problem going on. As the show progressed, it just grew into something that was bigger and larger than 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 what it should have been. Like when Sookie got a fairy godmother, and I was like, a fairy godmother? Really? What show? Right. Come on all, now. All of the storylines yeah, became embedded in another layer of the supernatural, mm-hmm. right? And I think that was just complicated to juggle. It's like maybe the connection between those things wasn't thought through in the way it was initially where it's like oh my gosh what happens when I fall in love with a vampire (laughs) (laughs) questions are so simple back then right right right. so I guess the real question is should shows have like a shelf life should they be should they end like after a few seasons or or, I mean I, I, I guess if a show is like the best thing ever you can keep it going on and on and on but like Seinfeld for example is a good example they ended at a point where people felt well no you can keep going it's still good you can keep going but they said we'd rather stop now because before people just don't care if we get canceled. I don't know. I mean, to the point earlier that the CW lets its shows go even maybe when it shouldn't, like lets them continue rather. Mm -hmm. Think about how I met your mother and how much coverage there is that this is the final, finally we get to meet the mother this this season. This is the final season. And that's a show I think that kind of went up and down and people loved and lost interest in and... And yet, you know, are rallying behind its its clothes, you know, or inexplicably Grey's Anatomy. Like, how long can that show <laughs> um, keep going? I still, keep it on forever. I know, I still don't understand. Or America's Next Top Model, the show that I love to hate, or now hate to even remember that I love. <laughs> Is back. It already season twenty, right? Cycle, yeah. cycle twenty. Cycle. Excuse me. Nah, cycle. Nah, 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 nah. Bad fan calling it season. How come you've never saved me from any vampires? I can't risk it being what I am. Vampires would kill me, and trust me, they will kill you. Now come with me while you still can. I thought the queen closed all the portals. Come with me, Suki. This is not a request. Stay away from me. So I have a story that's uh, also uh, embedded in an academic world, and I absolutely love this story. So um, there is a new course uh, starting Monday, October 14th at the University of California, Irvine. It's in partnership with AMC, and it's basically a MOOC, which is a massive open online course, and it's all about the AMC series, The Walking Dead. 
So um, let me just explain what a MOOC is. So it, it's it's an, a course you can enroll in from anywhere in the world. So this could have international students. It's free. All of us could join this course. Ooh. And it's being taught by a really interesting. So the idea is to take The Walking Dead and use it as a model for solving a whole host of problems across mathematics, across science, across social studies, you know, and it's sort of understanding that pop culture could actually be offer a way to think through really complex problems or rather a zombie apocalypse could be a way to figure out your real world problems, which is not unprecedented. I mean, the I think the Canadian government has used uh, a zombie apocalypse scenario to figure out how to deal with, you know, what happens if there's a, a, a terrorist attack or, you know, someone unleashes a chemical bomb on a city? What would you do? And so they use kind of the zombie scenario to work these through these things, maybe to get people more engaged and excited with it. Yeah. I mean, I think that zombies are so tied into pop culture and they're so popular because you can equate a zombie apocalypse with something that's going on right now. Uh, it doesn't seem like so far-fetched, really, uh, when you think about our society uh, as, like, some people think headed towards dystopian. I also think that's why dystopian movies like The Hunger Games and, you know, Divergent are, are gaining in popularity because we can, uh, we can sort of draw parallels between what's going on there and our own lives. I'd be interested. You had said that um, they would be sort of relating it to things like mathematics, which um, I, I guess I wouldn't. I, I don't really know how that would work, but that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, um, uh, Mayim Bialik, who is on the Big Bang Theory, she's also uh, starting this this thing for students that want to get into science and math, particularly girls. She's trying to encourage them with this zombie software. So I, yeah, it definitely plays into that. Well, or the at least the the promise that there's some kind of chemistry in Breaking Bad brought a lot of people who are interested in chemistry into that show, right? But some of the topics that they're going to teach through watching. So the this course starts the day after the show premieres, and because. Um, this fall. So, and because people will be watching on different timelines, you will have students. They've, they've built in something to the software so that'll prevent spoilers, which I find hilarious too. <laughs> um, and the, they'll discuss topics like, you know, physiological stress, stress reactions mm -hmm. to crisis scenarios, uh, how to deal with um, leadership, like what kind of leadership would you implement or hierarchy would you? implement in terms of a crisis and then population modeling to determine a species chances of survival or extinction. Yeah. And this isn't unprecedented. I mean, there's tons of college courses that uh, study popular television or popular film, you know, endless. I'm sure there have been tons of courses on True Blood, even if some <laughs> fans have gotten tired of that show. But I think what is unusual here is that they're actually cooperating, like they're working together. AMC is working with UC Irvine and then this kind of uh, online course designer to do this. So it's this kind of intriguing partnership, you know. And I was looking at this, and I actually came across, um, I had no idea that in the late 50s, all the way through the early 1980s, CBS had this partnership with NYU. It was called Sunrise Semester. And then in the summer, they would like summer semester. So early in the morning, they would um, you know, broadcast this classroom 
and you could anyone could participate and the topics ranged all over the map but it was like this online classroom or wow. on tv classroom that involved a partnership between nyu and, and cbs so kind of intriguing why wow, i'm sure we're not far away from doing that with more shows like i can see so many college courses doing that with girls i can see lena dunham coming in and giving lectures like i don't think that's too far off either but will it affect the plots of those shows? That's what that, I want to know. Yeah, <laughs> it definitely could. More definitely teachable could. moments. <laughs> We're dead. All of us. Because of you. I don't understand. Look, we came into the city to scavenge supplies. You know what the kid is scavenging is? Surviving. You know what the kid is surviving? Sneaking in and out, tiptoeing, not shooting up the streets like it's the OK Corral. Every geek for miles around heard you popping off rounds. You just rang the dinner bell. Get the picture now. We talk a lot about online television on Changing Channels, but today we're diving into the specific appeal of the web series. What makes a web series great? Uh, how do the creators get their webisodes to reach a mass audience? So here to answer these questions and more is the writer, director, producer of the web series Easy Abbey, which shoots right here in Chicago. Wendy Jo Carlton, welcome to Changing Channels. Thank you very much for having me. We're happy to have you here. So we would like to know, first off, what inspired you to create the web series Easy Abbey? Because you're a filmmaker. You have some feature films under your belt. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what inspired you about the short form of the web series. Oh, the short form. I think I've finally come into where I belong. Um, I love to make feature films, and it has its own um, currency, right, in the world. Feature films are uh, the most globally you know, consumed and appreciated form of, of film. But so is television, and the web series is kind of a, the best of both worlds for me um, as a creator. I like, um, as a writer, I like to write postcards. So mm -hmm. to me, the each ab uh, Easy Abbey episode has been about eight minutes, and it's like writing a postcard, mm -hmm. so it helps me define um, what's most important in that episode. Like there's less superfluous uh you know filler can we talk yeah let's let's define the show so um easy abby what what tell us about what this is about i mean we've all watched it but well easy abby is about a 31 year old a lesbian woman in chicago just trying to get by she's trying to make money she's trying to get um the hell out of chicago only because she's never left the midwest and um, she's a little stuck here because her, her mother has some uh, mental health issues, which is slowly revealed in season one. Um, I, I was kind of subtle about it, um, referencing her mom, but we're going to meet her mom in season two. Um, and she's currently um, in a psychiatric facility in the suburbs. <laughs> um, so we're going to meet her. I'm trying to get Joan Cusack or Martha Plimpton involved. So that's, you know, fingers, fingers crossed. crossed. Yes. Um, yes. Send some good vibes out. <laughs> right? They're fantastic um, actors. Um, and uh, Joan Cusack, as you know, is you know Chicago uh, background. But, um, but Abby is someone who is really good in bed with women. She's good as a romancer. She's not so great as a, uh, a long-term relationship person. And I'm interested in developing that character with Lisa Cordelione, um, who plays Abby and is co-producing the show with me. Um, I'm interested in the character 
of a woman who likes sex um, is, and it's not just sex, it likes romance and is just naturally good at it, right? But it is not, I want to represent uh, the experience of a woman like her, and it's not looked at as a problem. It's mm-hmm. not seen as an addiction. It's not seen as a dysfunction. It's actually just an extension of who she is. I want to entertain with the show, but also um, just, you know, I'm really motivated to show the a complex female protagonist who is also gay, but it's not about coming out. It's about just getting by. Um, yeah. It's just very idiosyncratic to her. Yeah, and I love how natural all the actors are on this show um, and and also how it shows anxiety and it shows these real people and, and, and like you were talking about the levels of intimacy. It's all very fascinating and the people that I know that have watched the show love it. So how do you get a show like this um, marketed and so people see it and draw people to your web series? I mean, clearly there's a niche I'm going for that is lesbian women and young women um, and also gay men. Um, but there's a crossover um, and that I'm wanting to do the crossover, uh, meaning mainstream, straight-identified viewers who can still relate to uh, the character's situations but also the universal, you know, falling in love, falling out of love, messing up, crappy communication, um, getting yourself out of a pickle. You know, this is, Mm -hmm. you know, pretty universal. Um, The difference being it's a young female lesbian protagonist. Um, Do you see that crossover happening? And are there strategies you've taken to to make it happen? Well, I think, yeah, when you look at the YouTube demographics, um, it's it's grown to almost 50-50 in male-female viewers. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of global... Um, fans. There are a lot of global fans. So when you look at the YouTube analytics, it breaks down to United States, then Turkey. Oh, wow. Turkey's number two. At Canada, Saudi Arabia, uh, Brazil. That's fascinating. That's incredible. Germany, France, and then it goes down from there. And um, what I was doing also on YouTube is you can um, caption, you do your English subtitles, for deaf, hard of hearing, right? So that they, they, they're there if you uh, choose caption on YouTube. But you can also use the Google, like, robot uh, translator into, you know, 12 different languages, which I've done for each episode. So you can watch it in Arabic with Arabic subtitles or, or German. And they're not, like, spot on. I'll get, I'll get mail from people like, um, it's a little off, you know, episode seven's a little off in the, uh, you know, Spanish, you know, I can help you out. And then I've had fans oh, cool. do the translation for us. It does suggest, though, like what you were saying earlier about what you're trying to represent. And I was curious whether the webisode is letting you do that more than, say, a feature film, because you've, you've played a lot with representations and sort of approaching stories in different ways in your films. But this suggests that the film is, or the the web series is appealing to audiences who maybe have at a have a different idea of what like the ideal say les like would be more in tune with it because it's a lesbian representation because it's a female representation versus say an audience that may just 
be, as you're saying, looking for something about, you know, young 30-somethings and sort of their travails. Right. And there's plenty of that out there. It's the yeah. It's the it's the main content that is out there is yeah. is uh, straight identified characters doing those situations. But um, I, I'm not just interested in replacing uh, the average sitcom with a lesbian protagonist. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. it, the writing itself, I'm more interested in going deeper with um, with relationships and and mundane everyday survival stuff. You know, so it doesn't have to be super dramatic. I think the dramatic is is Abby's romantic interludes and how she navigates them, um, and then the different personalities, uh, different women of different ages who she um, gets involved with. Right. Um, I I think in a way she's a little bit of a she's. I know, I don't want to say it sounds kind of bad, but it's almost like a public service, right? Because she tunes in kind of naturally so but when she's done she's done so if she has a weekend fling Mm -hmm. probably the woman's going to have a pretty good time and feels seen and feels heard and tuned into but Abby's not interested in you know being on replay Mm -hmm. she's on to the next thing but not so much as a conquest it's just she's more um she just has a what's the word it's like she has an appetite right <laughs> right and then once, once she's satiated her appetite yeah. right yeah. right it's like there's a smorgasbord and you know she just right and it definitely fills a special place in my heart that the L word left behind uh, I was a big fan of that show and I see um, there's some similarities there and it made me wonder is the eventual goal to take Easy Abby off the web and to network cable Netflix what have you or keep it as a web series um, for sure, the goal as a filmmaker is to sell the series to a network because that's that's how you're going to make your career. That's how you're going to make your money, so you can continue making more things. Um, right now, we um, we have a sales rep in LA who's now pitching the show. Um, that's so, great. so we're excited about that, and he wouldn't have come on board if he didn't see its potential um, for that. So, so that's happening with the goal of season one. Uh, and then season two um, being picked up. We're shooting season two in Chicago um, in a couple months here. Um, we just have to get that Joan Cusack, uh, Martha Plimpton role filled. <laughs> Nailed yes. down. Because yes. there's the mom and there's the yeah. nurse, the nurse of the mom. Do you, I mean, even though you want the show to be picked up to be, you know, on a more sort of mainstream outlet, do you worry about the loss of control over this storyline if it does get picked up? Yeah. Yeah, I, but like I say to Lisa um, Cordelione, I, I want to have that problem. It's a good problem to have yeah. um, to make that decision. I think, I think I wouldn't be quick to sign some contract with a network that was signing, you know, my my rights away as right. the creator or writer. So um, I'm pretty confident that it's all going to be a good thing. And the more people who can see the show, I think it does feed itself. You know, it's kind of exponential. Um, concentric circles. This is how we market. We don't have a marketing budget, so mm-hmm. I'm I'm doing all the twitting and I'm doing the Facebook and I'm doing the pages and I'm doing the Pinterest and then um, I research and then look for partners to cross promote with. So whether they're different bloggers, um, magazines, Curve Magazine just did an interview with us. It's going to be out. Oh, awesome! Um, later this month. Am I right that for the f- season finale of 
season one. Uh, you did a pay-to-view model. How did that go? Well, it's going pretty well. It's not financially going as well as we had hoped, um, but we had to take a chance. We had to take the risk because with the web series funding models, revenue models, it's it's pretty much a hybrid approach. So you you see what other people are doing successfully. You want to try it. We we did YouTube. We uh, season one has fourteen episodes. Mm-hmm. Easy Abby one through twelve are free to view um, on easyabby.com and. Uh, YouTube. Then the season finale is a double episode of 13 and 14, plus we beefed it up and put cast interviews and then um, production outtakes. So it's a 40-minute whole package, and so we're charging three bucks for that um, on easyabby.com just to try to get our bills paid for season one. I mean, they're all SAG actors, but it's they're all deferred. They have, the actors haven't gotten anything yet. Um, and Things like that, you know. So we have a great crew, we have a great cast, but we want to turn the corner here and uh, and make some profit and pay our bills. So, and here we are writing season two, going, oh, okay, hmm, maybe Kickstarter, maybe maybe someone will pick up the show, and then we don't have to worry yeah. about. Yeah, how, how have you gotten other than so this model? Um, how have you funded the series? Me and Lisa's uh, money. Wow, our personal our personal savings, yeah. Yeah, labor of love, you know, which is really what what these shows are when they first start out. Well, it's a risk. It's a risk. It's like you're you're doing something you love and that you believe in and is getting uh, popular acclaim and response. I mean, we have over 10 million views on YouTube, which is pretty substantial, Mm -hmm. um, especially with no famous actor behind it, no Hollywood producer um, helping, and no marketing budget. So 10 million views is, is head and shoulders above comparable web series um gay or straight so mm-hmm. so that's encouraging and we get some revenue ad revenue from youtube from from that um and that helps a little and then the season finale being three bucks that helps a little so our, for season two we're looking at a different model um and we're just experimenting right now either we'll be, get picked up um and purchase the show uh, by a network, whether it's Logo or the CW or Showtime. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> HBO. I mean, because we're at this quality level with hardly any money. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so think what you could do. Think what, think what, think what we can do. Because, I, I mean, I know I'm just, I'm ready now. We're in pre-production for season two, and we'll be shooting that in Chicago. And even if it gets picked up, I still want to keep the show based in Chicago. Yeah, you know, don't abandon us for L.A. or New York. You know, <laughs> Chicago is great. I can't think of a show also more deserving of, of an even broader audience than it has now. Um, we love Easy Abby. Uh, Wendy Jo Carlton, the writer, producer, director, thank you so much for coming on Changing Channels today. It's a pleasure. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Wendy. Yeah. Abby? Is that you? Summerfest. Last year... We made out in the porta potty line. Oh, yeah. You don't know my name. Is it Michelle? You gave me a hickey. And if you want to check out episodes of Easy Abby, it's easy. Head to easyabby.com. 
So we, in talking about television, wanted to sort of not just preview the fall TV season, but ask the question, why do we have TV seasons anyway? None of us seem to abide by the seasonal rule in terms of how we watch stuff these days. So um, to find out more, we're turning to a good friend of Changing Channels, Margaret Lyons, who's a TV critic at Vulture.com. Margaret, great to talk with you. Great to be here. I mean, I think it's still, for the most part, works. And I think when we've seen networks try to launch, say, like a prestige drama or even a serious scripted drama over the summer, um, I think NBC this summer is sort of a clear example of how that doesn't work that well. But on the flip side of that, we've seen cable networks very effectively launch their own scripted dramas and prestige dramas. So it's not clear why you might watch something on Showtime and not watch something on NBC other than um, maybe nudity. But uh, so a fall TV season still definitely makes a certain amount of sense for networks. For cable, though, it's going to be different. And also, you know, cable has sort of found ways to fit itself in where networks are like asleep at the wheel. That was true certainly in the last couple of summers where networks were not programming robust shows and cable was more than happy to uh, swoop in and and produce their own um, high-end shows. And that's sort of how we've gotten to where we are in terms of like the polarization of cable versus network. It's interesting because this summer seemed like, I mean, and I don't think this is the only time this has happened, but the network's trying to get back in on the game, you know, at least with something like Under the Dome, which comes off as like kind of a special, but like, we'll try it out now. I mean, do you see that kind of polarization shifting at all in the new TV landscape? Um, I think over the years, networks have tried that a lot. And it's not necessarily, I think it feels a little new every year, because for example, like, Under the Dome being only 13 episodes when it premiered. It was supposed to be 13 episodes. It's been renewed. But that was sort of like a nod to the effectiveness of, say, American Horror Story, which was 13 episodes from the get-go and is a new sort of anthology every year. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, a show like, for example, Beverly Hills 90210, way back in the day, that's a summer show. The OC premiered in August. Um, It's not so crazy that networks would try that. It has worked in the past. So I think seeing them continue to try is not so weird. I think the degree of failure is what's sort of perplexing to me. Um, you know, I don't know why a show like Mistresses on ABC did pretty well this summer, where a show like Siberia on NBC didn't do as well, even though I think they were of comparable, um, I don't know, excellence, which is medium for both. <laughs> Yeah, do we have a sense, I mean, so uh, in thinking about why you might adhere to a seasonal model or at least a block programming model and maybe seasons are what you've become used to, um, is do we know that the fall television audience is the larger, largest of the audiences? So I think one time of year you see a lot of people watching TV is certainly around fall premieres. It's hard to sort of chicken and egg that. Another time you see a lot of people watching would be spring finales, season finales and series finales that air probably in like May or June. I think it's a combination of things. One thing is that because television is ad-based, there's going to be different times of year when more people want to advertise. One time of year people want to advertise is, say, going into um, movie, like Oscar movie season and, and holiday movies and stuff. That's why we're seeing, you might see a lot of really good TV on in November when sweeps are set. That's going to set the advertising rates for the year. 
So there's a lot of weird things that go into it. There's also this feeling that in the summer, you know, people are out. People are going out, spending time outside, you know, softball leagues and whatever, um, and just aren't spending as much time at home watching television. And I think that has sort of been true, that just in general, the number of people watching TV in summer is slightly lower, or they're watching it at different times and they're watching slightly less of it. The thing that's interesting about that, okay, so the November model, that's interesting because that's when the J.J. Abrams series Almost Human is coming out, not until November. So sort of after we get through, you know, the kind of race out of the gate of a lot of these new series. Um, But the thing is that people don't have to watch on the network schedule anymore. You know, I mean, you, 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 maybe you want to watch the new series as they come out and sort of get a sense of them, but you could just wait. I mean, you could be watching what you missed this summer when you were out at all those softball games, you know, catch up on something like the bridge or the latest season of the killing, you know, and then, and then wait for these shows to kind of either make it or break it. I mean, do you think that those new, the, the new ways we watch binge watching or, you know, time shifted watching like is that having an impact on how networks make their decisions uh yes so there are some shows that do pretty well when they air say for example um Grey's Anatomy still a very popular show it does pretty well when it airs if you add in how many people watch it on DVR it's doing extremely well and that's a show that's going into I think it's ninth or tenth season so that's that's, you know we're still seeing that that kind of time shift of viewing having an impact on veteran shows, not just on new shows. I will say that one reason um, Almost Human is debuting late in the year is Fox has the World Series. So uh, they their fall schedule is often very uh, sort of janky because of baseball playoffs and the World Series. It's not just uh, trying to build suspense for Almost Human. You know, that's really interesting, though. I was going to ask you that. How much of this does have to do with sports and with navigating around sports? You know, I mean, I'm just thinking because, like, the CBS Time Warner um, dispute just got settled, and so much of um, why that was happening had to do with the timing of, you know, NFL, NFL and all of that. And so how much is the television sort of season organized around these kind of other events that are obviously televisual but not, not just? Right. Well, it's a lot. And one reason is uh, if you think about things that you would watch time shifted, maybe you have, you know, 11 episodes of The Bridge on your TiVo and you're going to watch them when you get around to it. You probably don't have 11 baseball games on your TiVo that you're going to watch when you get around to it. You watch those live. You might watch those in a group, but you probably watch them either when they air or when you get home from work and if it's been airing. You know, that is the sort of last bastion of live TV. So that becomes a really important part of how networks advertise their other shows. It's really annoying if you are a sports fan, but think of how often you've heard a promo, say, during the Olympics for all of NBC's shows. You hear it over and over and over. Every intro and outro bumper for the World Series will have some Fox star with, like, a glistening lens flare over their face. Watch Bones. You know, you'll see that over and over and over. You'll hear the same taglines for shows in, uh, and that'll be true for Sunday Night Football on NBC. That's true on all the baseball you see on Fox. And, you know, when you watch ESPN, you probably see promos for ABC programming because they have the same parent company. So you see those things a lot. It's not just that a lot of people watch sports and, therefore, outside advertisers are interested in advertising. It's that those sports shows are or shows good sports shows <laughs> they're called games that's still a time when people watch commercials because you're watching it live yeah 
some people have been looking at the fall season as, um, you know, that seeing these trends like, oh, you get like remakes of international shows. There's more of that happening. Or you get shows that seem clearly kind of derivative of something that's been a success, whether it's Mad Men or, you know, like just bringing in elements, actors or, or kind of ideas or certain forms of humor. Um, and that's all because, you know, we do get to watch so much more more easily than we ever had before. Do you think if there's maybe a correlation there that you see kind of an increase in content, um, is it making content better on television, on network television? Um, I think we can always find terrible shows. There will always be horrible shows. I've been watching the pilot so far this year, and there's a lot of shows where I just roll my eyes or think like, oh, I can't believe there's another, you know, stupid sitcom like this. Like, I think that will always be true. But if you go back and look at a network lineup from 1987, on the whole, our shows are much better. (laughs) They're just much better because we're sort of allowing for more niches. And yeah, you know, I do think that the comedies that are on today are not all amazing. Would I put them up against the lineup from 1991? Yeah, and if you think of all the sort of, like, the sort of staying power of a lot of that kind of hokey garbage that used to be really popular, uh, yeah, I think TV has gotten better. Um, But I wonder how much of that has to do with TV competing against itself and how much that still has to do with TV now competing also against the Internet. Right, so if you think about like sort of back in the day in like the seventies when T V started to be more experimental or more audacious in the way like certain dramas were being programmed and stuff like that, we also saw an increase in the interest in sort of uh, adventurousness of American filmmaking. Right. Mm-hmm. So there was um sort of an increase in both of those things together. And now that we're seeing more robust content, more interesting things on the internet, you could easily entertain yourself not just with you know, cat videos and stuff, but with really good, interesting writing and programming and games and stuff like that on the internet, TV has to compete now against that too. So it's raised the stakes, not just against like, I have to beat Fox. It's like, oh, I have to beat Fox and literally anything on the internet. That's a much higher bar to cross. I think in general, that's raising the standard for everything you might put on a television. So if you were in charge, and given what we've said about like the way network TV works, the way cable works, and that the way these streaming services are working, what would you do? I mean, would you keep a kind of seasonal model and with like, you know, the rating sweeps period and all of that? Or would you would you blow that up? Oh, that's hard. And I think it would depend on who was paying for my show. (laughs) Right? So if it's Netflix, it's like, give me all the money up front. I'll see what happens. If it's FX, I'll ask for the Louis C.K. deal and say, you know, give me a relatively modest budget for a TV show and butt out and let me make what I want. But if I am writing a show for CBS, I have different uh, requirements. And I might say, you know, I will write a cop show, put me on after NCIS, and we'll solve a murder every week and we'll all go home. Um, I don't think there's one right way to monetize a show or to have a successful show. I think one thing that's clear to me at least, um, and I think to people probably younger than I am, is that we're pretty platform agnostic. If I watched it on my television or on my computer or even on my phone, those things don't really matter that much to me. I don't care. I don't treat those experiences as substantially different. So I think as long as networks and cable networks are measuring those things the same way that they would measure it if I watched it on my television, um, 
there will always be sort of like easy ways to to make a show more popular, to convince more people to watch, and then, you know, somehow make that into a uh, money-making endeavor. And just before I let you go, just quick, is there anything you're like really looking forward to this fall season and anything you think is going to kind of die, a not a slow, painful death, but a really quick <laughs> and dramatic one? Um, I have been kind of disappointed in most of the sitcoms so far this year on network. There's just a lot of same, same, samey, same kind of mean-spirited dads and uh, overbearing mom stuff, and I'm pretty maxed out on that. I feel like I've seen enough of that kind of comedy, and I'm not looking for more. But then on the flip side, a show like uh, Sleepy Hollow, which from its previews, I thought, ugh, another cop show. <laughs> like, I can't watch another show where someone's a sheriff. Like, no more sheriffs. I'm tired of sheriffs. Uh, I saw the pilot for that, and it was actually, you know, sarcastic and funny and interesting and different, and it was really action-heavy and, like, uh, a lot smarter than I expected it to be. And I was really I was surprised by how into it I was. So I think there's we're going to be still seeing... Um, you know, plenty of cops, lots of cops, lots of lawyers, that kind of stuff. But within those genres, I think in drama especially, things are getting a little bit more fun. Well, and um, we have the Trophy Wife to look forward to now, too. Right. I actually, uh, I actually really did like Trophy Wife, although it does have a sort of samey modern family vibe to it. Um, I actually did like that show a lot. That's probably the only, uh, I'm looking at my list, that's probably the only new sitcom I'd be really excited about. I mean, I'm still sort of curious for Michael J. Fox show. I think that has room to develop. I thought the crazy ones was um, much more fun than I thought it would be. I thought it was going to be a little bit heavy on the, like, Robin Williams um, shtick, and it was a lot lighter on that than I thought. Um, Good to know. But there's still, um, yeah, I don't think we see any sort of breakout comedy just yet. Margaret Lyons is the TV critic for Vulture. Margaret, it was great to talk with you. It was great to talk to you. Never mind the fall TV season. Everybody's waiting for the end of Breaking Bad, which is mere weeks away. And we want to know, how do you think it's going to end? We want all the details. Who's going to survive? Who isn't? Lay out your scenarios. Give us your deep, dark, Breaking Bad fantasies at our hotline. Call 888-915-9922. Well, that time of the year has arrived. We are post-Labor Day, and people are talking about the fall TV season. We just sort of wanted to dive into some of the offerings that are coming or have already come our way. So I'm a little baffled by this this season or the offerings that are coming our way over the next few months. I mean, there's a lot of uh, series wrapping up um, or, you know, are kind of coming into the final stretch one hopes or one predicts of their existence. And then there's a lot of new stuff coming down the pike and not all of it looks great. Some trends that I've seen in terms of fall TV, and I think that a lot of networks are trying to do this because they're trying to create hits with, you know, based on like the last couple of years, it's been very difficult to create hits. Last year there was, you know, um, uh, uh, the NBC show Revolution. Um, that did well, but then when it came back, it didn't do um, that well at all because it had a very lar- long break in between the first set of episodes and the second set of episodes. Um, it's not still th- on, though. It's coming yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so there's not like a lot of shows that sort of came out as 
out and out hits. Um, so for this season, um, there's a lot of sort of film stars that are coming to TV and to network TV, which as we've seen, you know, film stars come to TV, they typically have gone to cable networks, they've gone to those premium channels and things like that. So um, there's going to be uh, Jonathan Riz Myers on Dracula on NBC, um, Mom with Anna Ferris, which is a comedy on um, CBS. And Allison Janney plays her mom. Yes. So that's really exciting. Um, Tony Collette's also going to have a, a TV show on CBS, which they've been advertising a lot for. Hostages. It looks yes. really good. It looks really good. I'm happy to see her back on after United States of Terror right. was canceled. Tony Collette seems fantastic. You know, Tate Donovan is on the show playing Tony Collette's husband. And then, of course, Jerry Bruckheimer, who gets creepier looking every day, is the executive <laughs> producer behind the show. I do worry about Dylan McDermott as a bad guy. I just thought, I mean, even though you were supposed to hate him in American Horror Story, I, I just cannot. I He's someone that appeals to me so little. And I think it's like, I really want that relationship to be dynamic. I don't think dynamic is in his... Uh, He's very white bread, and I mean that in like a, bag. a milk toast kind of way. He's yeah, there's not much there. I agree, but uh, but there, <laughs> someone someone who has a lot there, who's one of my favorite actors, actually, James Spader is going to be on this new show on NBC called The Blacklist. Now, Industry Buzz says this is the best pilot that has ever been made, or at least that has ever been made in recent years. There's a lot of buzz behind this pilot. He plays uh, a former terrorist who surrenders at FBI headquarters uh, and tells the FBI, I can help you find these terrorists, and it's called The Blacklist. Uh, So I'm really looking forward to that. It looks great. Robin Williams, yeah, is another cinematic actor that's coming on. I... It's his first return to TV since Mork and Mindy 40 years ago, but I just watched the the trailer for this. Now, I haven't seen um, It's called The episodes. Crazy Ones. Robin Williams is a force to be used sparingly, I think. <laughs> I don't think this is a good idea. I predict the show will not be around very long. Why do you think so? I just think that, I mean, I think she, well... I don't. I don't know what I think about well, Sarah Michelle Gellar anymore. But I do feel like I, I'm not a fan of Robin Williams. I don't think he should be allowed to just go free. You know, it, it doesn't produce good returns. I think Robin Williams playing an alien on Mork and Min- Mindy was probably the best thing for him because he is so insane in his comedy. Like I feel like his best comedic role was playing the voice of the genie in Aladdin because he's like so out there and it's all these weird like. Uh, it just for him to restrain himself I feel like he either has to be extremely broad in his comedy and play like an alien or just like a straight up crazy person or really reel it back in and be like the role he won an Oscar for where he just played um, uh, you know the therapist to Matt Damon's character in Good Will Hunting um, I feel so it's this this show looks like he's somewhere in the middle like he's kind of a funny guy but not but he can't I, I just feel like he's he's too one side or the other, and I just don't see the show working at all either. I kind of predict that about Mom with Allison Janney. Yeah. It's going to be a, like it'll be the same sort of middle ground. And, the, you know, this is the fear that, you know, you're reaching for hits and what you end up is, is with is mediocrity. I mean, even is that going to be a good role for Anna Ferris? Can she pull that off? And are you just sort of like throwing these names into boxes that don't necessarily fit Hitting them? the right tone is hard. Like it's like, it's supposed to be funny, but then she's like, they're talking about, this is like the most fun we've had since we were doing meth together. I'm like, that's kind of sad. Like yeah. that's not really funny. It's not like, good. Pulling it. Yeah. Um, you know, Brooklyn Nine-Nine is another um, show that I think people will be wondering about the tone, which I think looks 
like it has so much potential on the service. It's uh, it's uh, Andy Samberg, of course. But what my interest is is Andre Brower is back <laughs> with uh, playing. You know, the he's Andy Samberg is a detective uh, in Brooklyn, and then. Andre Brower is the new lieutenant or, you know, in charge and sort of the the clash, the classic clash of personalities, the wild and crazy Sandberg versus this like buttoned up, but very at least witty so far, it seems. Andre Brower is so great as yeah. a straight man. But my one fear, though, with the show, because I've seen like, you know, seen the trailer for it, is that I don't know if it would be right for network TV, like I could see it on, you know, a, a smaller cable network. I totally agree. With where they you. could co more, like they could push the envelope more. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. it seems like they want. And again, yeah, we're talking about that box, right? Can you do really what you want to do when you have a kind of interesting concept? Great actors in the sitcom model. I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> You ready to get serious? Cause this is gonna get serious. Oh, I could have been somebody. Yes. I got him on the rope. Does he not look gas? Come on, bring it, Gumby. Boom! You got knocked out by a girl. I'm just curious if either of you are at all interested about any of the new cable offerings because Masters of Sex, which is coming out on HBO, which is the drama, which I think I feel really mixed about it. Um, you know, it's about Kinsey and mm-hmm. sort of that whole period, which actually has kind of a local tie in terms of Chicago. That research was all done in, in Indiana, you know, not that far, just down the road from us. <laughs> and the Kinsey archive is still there. But I feel like this is it's it's um, it's trying to maximize the success of Oh, look at Mad Men did well, this right. sort of retro looking sexy show. It's trying to play on that and then it's going to kind of fall flat on his face. Yeah, I feel like whenever something is too derivative, like I'm, yeah. I'm going to knock on the CW for a second, but it's because they have this show coming out called Rain, which is, I think, sp- sort of capitalized, Rain spelled R-E-I-D. About Mary Queen yes. of Scots starring yes. Megan Fallows from Anne of Green Gables. It's capitalizing it's on the be whole terrible. popularity of like down to all these period, you know, like Downton Abbey and uh, and, and even the totally. Tudors, which was pretty popular in its day. Um, but I just think it's it's so derivative that I just I just don't see it working. And it's really playing heavily with the anachronism so that even though it's supposed to be set in that historical period, the way characters are dressed and the way they talk, which is totally a CW. I mean, I think it's a kind of clever strategy. It looks like, um, you know, they're contemporary, like they're straight out of Gossip Girl. It is kind of like a mashup like of Gossip Girl and Downton Abbey. <laughs> like the, instead of Blair, it's Oh my no God, Mary. you're a queen. What are you going to do? <laughs> Let's go shopping. Yeah, pretty much. I had to throw that in there. I mean, the the CW is, uh, they kind of did okay with that same sort of like, uh, maybe not like something being like derivative, but like taking the success of something else and and doing their own thing when they sort of originally created Vampire Diaries, which definitely came on the heels of Twilight, but also like True Blood as well. Um, But the Vampire Diaries was based on its own set of books. So it had like a... A built-in following. Yeah, exactly. Compared to like... Rain, which I don't know very much about, but from what you're describing, sounds like they're taking some historical facts, but really just sort of like trying to build on, like you said, Downton Abbey and Game of Thrones and and the sort of popularity of those types of television Uh, shows. I don't think historical 
accuracy is their goal in this. I think it's more like a, a fad of, of what's going on right now with the pretty, pretty period pieces and queens. But that's just my take on it. I think it would if if Sofia Coppola would come to TV and do Rain. I, it feels like a total like it would be a great Sofia Coppola. And she, why wouldn't she do TV? Why I think should... Sofia Coppola would be so good for TV. Yes, I can't. I've never thought of that before. But now that you've said it, I think especially because so many of her movies are looking at like the same things, right? They're they're always like these these female led uh, you know stories, and a lot of it's about like. Youth and um, sort of, I don't want to say like depression, but this sort of like angsty. The affectlessness of her characters, right? That she's tapping into and existing in pop culture in a really interesting way, sort of like being immersed and deeply in it, but somehow maybe not entirely of it. I think, yeah, I think she has the perfect, and there isn't. Is there anything like that on TV? You know, I mean, we have like the drama and we have the comedy right. and we have these like mashups, but I don't know if there's anyone like her. That middle, middle ground show. Yeah. yeah. I think she could do a lot if she had like an HBO deal and only like maybe like six episodes because I can't imagine her wanting to do a lot. I think it's time to yeah. write a letter or send an email <laughs> to HBO with our great pitch. Come to TV, <laughs> Sofia Coppola. So we talk obsessively about television every single week, but we would love to know what your thoughts are about anything that we've covered or anything we haven't covered. Give us a shout on our hotline, 888-915-9922. Changing Channels is a production of WBEZ Chicago Public Media. Our executive producer is Andrew Gill, our intern is Mickey Capper, and our digital content editor is Tim Akimoff. You can subscribe to this and all of our podcasts in iTunes. Be sure to rate and review us while you're there. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at WBEZ. Find more information about this and all of our podcasts at WBEZ.org. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information available at chicagopublicmedia.org.